Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Part of this reality that we live in is the simplicity that exists here, just here. It can be a profound statement to recognize or to say, we are here, we are here. And it's easy when people start being mindful to understand how little our attention, our awareness, our being is really here. Perhaps we're chasing our dreams. Perhaps we're running away from our demons. Or perhaps we're fighting windmills
but to be here without the fights, without hiding, without running, can be quite profound. And from time to time, it's nice to have the experience or to know or to taste that just to be alive is enough. Just to be here and breathe. Just to be here and not concerned with matters beyond this moment, this place, here and now. A world which, in a certain way, is a virtual reality because it lives so much in the world of the constructs of our thoughts and ideas and imagery. And what's tangible, what's not virtual, is the actual. And the actual can only be here. The actual for you can only be you here. You as the locus, the center of the perceived world that you're part of. And these Dharma talks are strange. To give a talk that's supposed to talk, point to the end of the talk, to something which doesn't point to what doesn't need the talk. to sit here and waiting for something special to come from a talk. Hold on to expectations and wishes and hopes and aspirations, rejections and judgments. Of the talk for the speaker or for the listener. It's a strange thing when it's pointing to some kind of freedom, some kind of presence, some kind of way of being that is free of all those hopes and expectations and judgments. And it can be quite simple to just be here. Just to be alive is enough. And I think it's easy, or say differently, at some point it becomes obvious how searching, trying, expecting, living for the future, or just that. And that 
Maybe we don't need them as much as often, as much as we do. And they can come a time when we appreciate how much of a virtual reality we live in, how many thoughts and ideas and imaginations that we participate in that seem so important. And to appreciate maybe something about the simplicity of being here, just here. And certainly in this Vipassana movement, being here is kind of, you know, one of the ideals. But even ideals are dangerous. Even this ideal that I'm talking about today of just being here. And what do we do when we're not here then? There's a saying, a little cliche or a little slogan. It takes different shapes, but the one I like is no mud, no Buddha. Sometimes people say no mud, no lotus. No mud, no Buddha. And the mud is the world of our attachments, the sticky world that we get caught in. All the things which happen, we do that are not ideal. How we, sometimes the things we fight with or want to get rid of or things we feel bad about or feel upset about or feel ashamed of or build up conceit around and all these wonderful things that human beings do. And it's easy to have this ideal that it's not supposed to be there. But, but, you know, a lot of what we're doing here is to really be present here for what's actual. And what actual is here is not often, often not comfortable. It's not ideal. So what is it to be here? with what is uncomfortable, what is not ideal. There's a saying that if you're not free when things are uncomfortable, you're not really free. If you're waiting for everything to be comfortable to be free, you're gonna wait forever. So this this mutuality of the mud, the attachments, the clinging, the non-ideal, and Buddha, freedom. There's no freedom without being free from something. So freedom in a certain sense needs the attachment. And where is a freedom found? And a lot of the freedom in this practice is found in being aware, being mindful. And many people are practicing mindfulness in order to see or have insight or have wonderful experiences. And in doing that, 
we miss part of the kind of secret or part of the key to all this, which is found in the very qualities or aspect or nature of very simple awareness, simple mindfulness that can hold, that can be present for, that can recognize what's happening. So when um, there was a kindergarten class where once a week the children would, the students would make little figures, usually animal figures, with their beeswax. But when they went to get the beeswax from the shelves, it would be hard from not being used for a week. And you can't really do anything with hard beeswax except to break it. So the instructions the kids had was to put their beeswax between the palms of their two hands. And then the teacher would tell them a story. And by the time the story was over, the warmth of the hands had softened the beeswax. And then they could make a you know, little animal figure or something. If you touch your hands together, maybe in a namaste kind of way, one of the things you might feel, only because of you do that, you might feel warmth. Somehow between the hands or you might feel softness. Remove the hand and maybe you don't feel that quite anymore. But feel that and you feel the warmth, the softness, this maybe if you rub them smoothness, something like that. That only exists there if they touch. But it's not just a touching, it's also what arises in that warmth is the awareness of the warmth, the awareness of the softness. And it's kind of like this middle space, it's kind of like the it's kind of in, almost like in between the two hands. And so no, no mud, no Buddha. To meet, to have, the, to have, hold an awareness, your soft palms of your awareness, the hardness of your life, the difficulties of life, that which is not ideal or challenging, but simply to hold it there here, this is what's happening now. It's profound to be with what's here. No matter how difficult it is here. And it's kind of almost very subtle, this thing of awareness. It's like the warmth between the palms. Just to be there, be present, to be aware. And to hold that, and there we begin to find our freedom, begin to allow for freedom. So there's something subtle there, maybe not so subtle, of just being here with this, with our attention, with our awareness, without needing to do anything or accomplish anything or be anyone or prove anything, just here with what is not ideal.
and to hold it in the warmth of our attention. And I like this image of the namaste where the hands are just flatly touching together. The fingers are not interlaced. One hand is not grabbing the other hand. So we, you know, that which is not ideal, that which is difficult for us, the pain, struggles and whatever, to not grab it, not push it away, but in this delicacy of just the warmth of our attention, to touch it, be there. Maybe awareness touches that which is not ideal, but which is here. Like soft cotton ball that just touches, just there. Soft contact with here. And it can be hard to appreciate the value of this. It's easy to think that what is uncomfortable and difficult that's actually here shouldn't be here. We should get rid of it and somehow have the spiritual technology that's going to obliterate it, free us from it. But there's actually something very profound about feeling that which is not ideal, that which is difficult, that which is painful, and just meeting it with the softness of our awareness. Do you have, a, do you have available a soft mindfulness? Do you have available an attention that doesn't need anything different to happen than to meet the experience, to be here with it? Do you have any sense of that as a valuable possibility? That's very different than having agenda and working to change something or do something or accomplish something, get anywhere. Just here, with this. And part of this, you know, no mud, no Buddha. With mud, there's Buddha, there's freedom. Part of this is what's here for all of us from time to time, maybe most of the time, not doing the practice right, or not feeling this is not quite what it's supposed to be, or I'm not right up to snuff, or if I really was concentrated, really had clear mind from all, oh, then, then it would work. Oh, then, that's the mud. Can you meet those thoughts, those expectations, those judgments, those ideas? It's okay that you have them, but you don't have to. You just meet them, hold them tenderly. And if the idea of you know, the warmth between your hands has some meaning, it's also almost like bowing to them. Here's this. And there's something poignant occasionally amusing, occasionally sobering maybe, or occasionally irritating, about practicing with our experience where we just allow it to be what it is. And we put, just that's the, that's the difficulty, that's the non-ideal, and I'm here with this. And even though there's kind of a freedom at the same time, you're still left with a non-ideal. No bargaining. 
just this. Over 20 years ago, <clears throat> Jack Cornfield was giving his usual Monday night class down just down the hill from here. And he um, asked the people there, Does any, would anybody like to teach mindfulness at the local state prison called San Quentin? And something like seven or nine people raised their hands. And one of them was a man named Jacques Verdun, who happens to live here in Woodacre still. And so those seven, nine people started going into San Quentin to offer meditation to the inmates. After one year, Jacques was the only one left. And he's continued ever since. It's been his life work, bringing this practice there. And over the years, he's tried many things, some it didn't work, but he's offered, but he still to this day, he offers meditation group there. So I'd like to read, so last Friday he had his group, and uh, someone has been teaching now for over 20 years to, to these prisoners, these inmates, who come with a lot of mud. Maybe not a lot of Buddha yet. And last Friday, he gave this, uh, he read this to them. And um, the, the quotes by, um, from Rachel Naomi Remen, and it's about listening. It's, it's, it's uh, literally about listening to other people. But I think when he read it to people in meditation group, it was encouraging them to listen to themselves. So maybe in that spirit, you can hear this. Listening is the oldest and perhaps most powerful tool of healing. It is often through the quality of our listening and not the wisdom of our words that we are able to affect the most profound changes in the people around us. When we listen, we offer with our attention an opportunity for wholeness. Our listening creates sanctuary for the homeless parts within the other person, that which has been denied, unloved, devalued by themselves and others, that which is hidden. The most basic and powerful way to connect to another person is to listen just listen. Perhaps the most important thing we can ever give each other is our attention. A loving silence often has far more power to heal and to connect than the most well-intentioned words. So if we restate it for ourselves here in the retreat. Listening to ourselves being aware of ourselves is the oldest and perhaps the most powerful tool of healing. It is often through the quality of our attention and not the wisdom of our words 
that we are able to effect the most profound changes in ourselves. When we listen, we offer with our attention an opportunity for wholeness. Our listening creates sanctuary for the homeless part within us, that which has been denied, unloved, devalued by ourselves and by others, that which is hidden. The most basic and powerful way to connect to oneself is to listen. Just listen. Perhaps the most important thing we can ever give ourselves is our attention. A loving silence often has far more power to heal and to connect than the most well-intentioned words. So now you have something in common with inmates in San Quentin. Those words. So over the years, Jacques did develop many programs for San Quentin. And he did, in response to requests, prisoners and wardens and his own ideas. And he did anger management classes that was an extension of the mindfulness. Everything was an extension of the mindfulness. He did violence prevention classes. He developed uh, victor offender classes where uh, offenders would meet their victim if they're still alive or family members or people who had who experienced similar crimes but weren't the direct offender or the direct victim. And he goes on and he created all these wonderful programs and and um, the wardens at St. Quentin, for the most part, really valued what he did and opened doors for him to be able to do this work. And, and then after doing this work for about 15 years, he had a dream. And the dream resulted that he started to offer, to, he started to fold it all together into a year-long program and all these pieces. And partly he felt that the reason to do that was he needed to create a tribe, he needed to create community where the, the men could really go through something as a community together for a year. And, um, and he called it the acronym GRIP program, Guiding Rage into Power. And last Friday, right now in California, there are 500 inmates around the state who are going through his program. And uh, they can't get enough people to teach them, or there's long waiting lists of inmates who want to do this program. It's been a very successful program. And um, so successful that the parole board asked them, asked him to come and Teach, teach them what he was doing. That's impressive. He was like a little shocked at the parole board. And, um, and now some, some, I don't know, number, over a hundred of his people he's trained have gotten parole. And the recidivism rate in California State Prison, meaning how many of the prisoners return to prison within a year or so, is something like 
It's very sad, very, you know, the, the recidivism rates for the people who go through a Jacques program is zero. So, um, he teaches this practice, but he teaches it in creative ways. So last Friday, there was a meeting of one of these classes, and they're called a tribe. And he does it intentionally as a kind of way of turning upside down the strong kind of gang culture that some of them go through, where that's their mis- dysfunctional way of being in community. People need to be connected. And each tribe, each class that goes through a year, has a tribe name, which they come up with at the beginning. And it's always a number. And, and the numbers are, seem to be somewhere between 700 and 1,000. And last Friday, the tribe name was 933. There were 32 men in the program. And 933 represents the total number of years they've served in prison. That's a lot of years. Last year he had an inmate who had spent 25 years in solitary confinement at Pelican in Pelican Bay. Somehow he ended up in Jacques program. So this year, this Friday was tribe 933. But there's a second number, which is an important part of the tribe. And that number is eight minutes and 45 seconds. Eight minutes and 45 seconds represents the total time of accumulated by all those 32 men of the actual time they were in danger of committing their crime. From the time that they were going along just fine and, and then they committed a crime. Those eight minutes and 30 and 45 seconds translated to 933 years of, of prison. That makes a big impression. And he calls that time the moment of imminent danger. And Jacques likes acronyms. So he calls that the ID moment. And the task is to learn to recognize the ID moment. So he passes out flashcards. Imminent danger is a moment between anger and violence, or craving and using. Three characteristics of this ID moment. Everything speeds up, everything intensifies, and there's a moment of regret afterwards if the person has acted out. And so one of the things he does is to train in teaching mindfulness these men to learn first to recognize what this imminent danger moment is. And so when they're in the prison, 
they can recognize it when it comes up because they can still get in trouble in prison. And, um, but also they have to go back and part of the year, it's a whole, part of the reason it's a whole year, they have to go back and really understand their crime and how it happened and all the conditions that came together. They have to really look at it honestly and look at that moment of imminent danger. quite touching to be in his classes because of how important this work is for the people who are there and what they're up against, what they have to address. This, this uh, tribe 933, of those 32 men, there were 15 people who were killed. So this is not, you know, lightweight criminals we're talking about. So he teaches them all kinds of things. One of them is um, something he calls the power of witnessing setta, S-C-T-A. And setta stands for sensations, emotions, thoughts, and action. It's another way of saying, teaching the practice we do here. And in these cards, it's the, he hands out these cards to the inmates and so they can go home and read it and home, they can go to their cell and read it. By carefully observing sensations, I notice that what informs me changes all the time. I learn to be aware. He teaches these men how important it is to tune into the physical sensations of their experience. Keep coming back to that. And these physical sensations are kind of, to a great extent, the building block where a lot of the bigger reactions, judgments, ideas, actions that we have they so often begin the simplicity of sensations. And then to notice that actually they change all the time. That's a powerful way of not getting swept in to that moment of imminent danger, swept into conclusion, swept, swept into reactivity. By fully feeling emotions, I become deeply informed of what affects me. Yet I'm able to let go of how emotions can sway me to be reactive. I learn to be authentic and make wise choices. I'm able to let go of how emotions can sway me to be reactive. So he doesn't say, I learned to let go of emotions. But he learns to let go of the influence that emotions have on me that's a powerful thing. That's the ability to meet the mud with Buddha, with some freedoms, this awareness that we have. And so for these men to learn to pay attention to their emotions, some of them have never dreamed of this. 
had never been taught this. By noticing my thoughts and mental states, I become able to detach from my belief systems. I learn freedom. One of the things he teaches the men is uh, something he calls male BS. They have to learn about male BS. And that's um, male belief systems. (laughs) (laughs) So pay attention to sensations, to emotions, to thoughts. There's a, there's, you know, Those are really key if we want to find freedom, if we want to be present here with a softness of attention in a way that we can find freedom, just to be here with this, this too. Not the ideal, not what, you know, some blissful state, but here with this, to see this. And it's hard with some of these. Sensations are uncomfortable, and so we react or they're comfortable, they're blissed out, beautiful sensations, and we get attached. Emotions can be all over the map, and people have all kinds of reactions to emotions, some favorable, some difficult. And thoughts, so easy to get hooked in. Thoughts have a way of camouflaging themselves, where the authority or the importance of what we think is so strong we get pulled into its orbit And we don't even know we're thinking, it's just the truth. And to be able to kind of be here and see a thought be born. Here and just see a thought, just be a thought is amazing, amazing, powerful. There's freedom to be found in watching a thought arise and maybe float away. It's not easy because sometimes thoughts can seem like the most real thing in the universe. Nothing can be more real than my thought and what I think and what I believe and what I know has to happen and my judgment. But what are thoughts? In some ways they're the most ephemeral thing. I wonder how many thoughts that you've had today you'll have no memory of tomorrow. But when you had them, it was so significant. Little exercise you can do if you do walking meditation. And if it should happen, accidentally, that while you're doing walking meditation, you have a thought, (laughs) continue walking, turn around and come back <clears throat> to where you just had the thought a few seconds before. So you return to that place and then look around for it. <laughs> where did it go? Where is it? It was, here, it was here just a moment ago. And it might be for some, sometimes it, <clears throat> when you first had it, it seems so precious and so important and so insistent and so like, but 
gone. But if it doesn't go that fast, <clears throat> then come back at the next after the next walking period to the same place and look for it. These thoughts are just, what are they? We give them so much credence, so much authority. One of the things, I like the idea that this concept that we invest a lot in our thoughts. These poor thoughts, they get invested with so much hope and aspiration and demands. So Jacques teaches people to notice thoughts. And then the last one, so setta, sensations, emotions, and thoughts, is actions. <clears throat> By being patient with my actions and practicing how, I wait, how to wait, I learn how to respond skillfully. I learn to be compassionate. By being patient with my actions and practicing how to wait. And waiting is sometimes how these men learn to get through the moment of imminent danger. These few seconds that can have these consequences that for a lifetime. So then he has another flashcard called Sitting in the Fire. And he writes, <clears throat> Sitting in the fire, burning clean and leaving ashes. The practice of choosing to go in, through and out of feeling an intense emotion of original pain and making peace with it. What he has discovered is that so much of the terrible actions and harm and suffering that these men have caused responsible for, in some ways, background of their crime, was what he calls their original pain. For these men, it often has to do with their father. Father who left, father who beat them up, father who was killed. Violence of all kinds. at a very young age. And what do you do? You close down, you act out, you try to get something else through other, you know. Crime is often an expression of this deep wounded that people have. One of the wonderful sayings that the prisoners in San Quentin produced one day and now has become gone quite wide a field, but it was born in his program, is the saying, hurt people hurt. There was a gang member who said that. And then someone who was a part of a different gang who was in the class added, and healed people heal. That's quite something. Healed, people heal. So the original pain. So one of the things he does in this year-long GRIP program is support and help these men to identify their original pain and learn to sit with it. Just to be with it here, now, just this. The soft attention. 
sitting in the fire, he calls it. Exercising my power to respond skillfully rather than react blindly. Sitting in the fire is a practice wherein I learn to tolerate and befriend my original pain. It's about healing instead of medicating myself. And then the final Vipassana flashcard that I'd like to read. That some of you will recognize this as coming out of the very core teachings of Buddhism, stated in a way that, you know, in a different way. It has the acronym Q-TIP. Quit, quit taking it personal. When I Q-tip, so he has a, when I Q, when I quit taking it personally, he says, and people, I guess the prisoners read this to themselves. It's kind of a, so. When I Q-tip, I change directions and turn inwards. I make myself safe. That's quite something. By not taking it personal, I make myself safe. When I quit taking it personal, I lower my head, breathe out deeply and slowly. When I quit taking it personal, I become aware of my sensations and tolerate them. When I quit taking it personal, I unplug from the script that blames the other person. When I quit taking it personal, I acknowledge that my upset signals, my upset signals hurt and or fear, and I commit to processing my hurt and fear, instead of, I guess, acting it out. When I quit taking it personal, I self-soothe, self-comfort, and create space. So I started by saying that to be here is profound. It's such a profound thing that maybe, maybe nothing else should be said. But that doesn't mean that here is easy. No mud, no Buddha. So how do we meet the mud? How do we meet our challenges, our difficulties? How do we have a practice of liberation that doesn't look towards bliss, doesn't look towards somehow bifurcating the world into some kind of 
romantic ideal. And then really what's here, this, this complicated world that we live in. How do we put our hands together and our hands of our awareness together so that our, the warmth of our hearts, the warmth of our awareness, the softness of awareness doesn't make a fist, doesn't grab, but just touches what's there. And can we appreciate that doing so is both profound and valuable, but not easy when we sit in the fire. And I can say the men at sent these men at the grip program, they have to learn to sit in the fire. and to witness them go through the fire is rather I don't know what to say how to say it, what to say about it I don't know maybe it's because of I don't know, but um, it's like witnessing a volcano. It's quite something to accompany people who go through this. So this practice that we do here is quite powerful. It's not designed for stress reduction (laughs) or so we can be calm at work. It's nice that it helps that, that's good. But it's meant for some of the fundamental core issues of what it means to be a human being, the existential aspects of our life. And to be able to meet it in this very simple way that is so profound here with these sensations just here, in the warmth of our awareness. Nothing more than just this. No before or after. No being caught up in needs and beliefs. Not needing, not inclined, or not being caught in pushing away or grabbing hold. Learning how not to take it personal not to define ourselves by this, what's happening, not to you let it represent us and just, just sensations, emotions. To be very simple with it, simple with our emotions, to have simple emotions, emotions that are uncomplicated by our reactions and second arrows and judgments and shames and without taking it personal, just an emotion. It's a beautiful thing to let an emotion exist in its own simple, pristine purity. The simple, pristine purity of rage. Just, just sadness, grief, happiness, joy. 
just to hold it, to allow it, touch it, here, now. So we learn a simplicity of being here, but a simplicity of being that can put us through the fire, a simplicity of being that's quite profound, a simplicity of being that is the meeting of mud and Buddha, mud and freedom. So here we are. Here is profound. And what is it to really be here? Where is here? Maybe you'll answer, here is North America. That's nice. That you know what continent you're on. But it's a little bit abstract. It's a little bit, you know, the unseen world. It's an idea, a memory, a learned idea. So to come bring it closer, what where are you? What's he where's here? Spirit rock. But it's not so clear what spirit rock is. Is it the people are here? Is it the boundaries of the land? Is it the buildings? Is it, you know, is it all the aggregate of all of it together? It's not so clear what spirit rock is. It's kind of an abstraction. So if we really come in closer, what is, what is it to be here? Here is in this meditation hall. Just here. But meditation hall is also an abstraction. I've been in this hall when it was a dance hall. I've been here, been, this room has been many different things. So it's been time, but you know, we call it a meditation hall now, but that might change. So it's not, you know, it's not quite enough to say it's here in the meditation hall. So what is it to be here? If we drop the, so many of the concepts, the ideas, and really come in, be intimate to here. Oh, here is to be here on this chair and this mat, on this cushion. But is that really here? Are you really connected to the whole chair or the whole mat? Now to be here is to just the places of contact. I'm here where I touch the chair. I touch the mat. That's here. That's the location where I'm here. But sitting quietly, maybe with the eyes closed. What does it matter that it's a chair or a mat? What is that? Here is not a mat, it's just contact hardness and softness and pressure. So what is it to be here? To really be here, where the mind becomes, begins to let go of its abstractions and thoughts and ideas. Oh, it's just these sensations. 
what is it to be here? And we feel all the sensations of the body. Oh, here is to be with these sensations, these thoughts, these emotions that are swirling and moving here. But then to feel that here, where am I really? Oh, maybe in the swirl of sensations and emotions and thoughts, there's a place maybe of contraction, of coagulation, of a little bit tightening energy, which maybe is the control tower where I am. Now I know where I am in the control tower. Thoughts and impulses, desires and wishes. Some, some occasionally people feel like it's a location, not un, uncommonly in the head. There could be other places. But is that really here? If you go close to that, feel it intimately. What is this place that I identify as being me? Well, the sensations and tightness and swirling and pressure and, and these thoughts that come and go. If a thought comes then goes, was it you? Did you disappear with it? No, that's not, the thoughts are not me, the sensations are not me. Maybe they're very searching for me. It's too much work. (laughs) Because it's hard to find me and all that. What is it to be here? When even the I gets settled, quiets down, just here. And no longer I'm here. Just here. Here, in space. Here, in silence. Here, in stillness. Here, in awareness. Awareness that no longer needs to be self-referential. Just aware. Aware and here. Here and aware. Here is a profound aspect of reality. Every moment is an opportunity to discover anew the profundity of being here just here.
in the softness and warmth of your awareness. I hope it nourishes you, heals you, and guides you to a life that's free and wise. <laughs>